Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. What we read earlier, what we're going to study now, verse by verse, uh, it is one of the most, I think it's one of the most exciting and encouraging to the Christian uh, accounts in all of the book of Acts. Uh, I mean, if you like action-packed movies uh, or TV shows, um, I'm kind of a, I've always been a blessed man. Krista loves that genre. Uh, she's, I mean, she'll watch a rom-com too and make me suffer through a Hallmark movie every once in a while. But she, she likes the action stuff. I, I, love, I love that Jason Bourne series. Um, but whatever, that, that's got nothing on what we're reading here together this morning. And I hope we can conclude that what is described here, uh, it is not just history. Uh, this is who our God is. And this is how he works, even today. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? That's what the God's word tells us about him. Like everything that is written in the book of Acts, um, this passage details the continuing work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through his followers. And that's important for us because truly this book of the Bible is one that uh, is not really designed to have an ending. Uh, you and I should be participating in the ongoing saga here because God is still um, doing the work of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, through Christ's followers. Uh, it's been more than a month since we looked at what was going on. Uh, all of December, we've been elsewhere in God's Word. Uh, back at the end of November, we finished Acts chapter 11. And the church, if you remember, the church was growing exponentially. Um, the gospel had branched out from Jerusalem uh, on up into Antioch, what, what is modern-day uh, Turkey. Uh, and the Christians at that church in Antioch, they were growing in their faith. They were being discipled by Barnabas and, and Paul. Um, they, they had even taken up love offering for the Christians, their brothers and sisters in Christ down in the mother church in Jerusalem uh, because they had heard that famines were about to happen there and, and their brothers and sisters were going to be in need. And from what we learned uh, from the beginning of chapter 12, uh, famines were not their only trouble at this point. Um, before we find out else what is going on, let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. And uh, Father, we do come to you now asking for your Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of this passage to us. It is definitely an exciting passage. Um, it is action-packed, but, but it should be exciting for us more than anything because uh, it ought to inspire and encourage our faith that uh, you are the same God. You are unchanging in what you did then. Um, you are doing now and you want to do in our lives so I pray that we would respond uh, like those who are faithful here. Lord, I pray that we would recognize um, that when persecution of any kind comes our way, that there is great power in prayer and that we can persevere in our faith when we uh, trust in who you are, that you are the great provider and that you are the great protector. And I pray that you would um, not only help us to leave here more informed about what this section of your word means, but that we be transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So not just famines, but the church in Jerusalem, according to the first few verses, was also uh, experiencing the peril of persecution. Uh, now, they had faced persecution before, of course, but uh, this was a new or at least renewed level. And, and right when they were dealing with these famines, uh, it is like that sometimes in the Christian life, isn't it? Uh, you ever have that type of experience? Uh, it's like, God, I, I could handle this, <laughs> that you sovereignly sent my way, but, but now I'm feeling like I'm dealing with wave after a wave. Well, the truth is, you and I can't, can't handle anything on our own uh, without Christ. And with him, we can handle anything. And it's so important that when we face things like this, uh, that we always understand um, that both Satan and God have a purpose in what we are going through. What is Satan's purpose? Well, let's read verses one through five again. It says, now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people Let's just pause here. Peter, therefore, was kept uh, in prison. So we're not told explicitly uh, in these first five verses what Satan's specific purpose in the peril uh, that the church was facing through persecution was. But we know from Scripture um, that Satan's purpose is always whatever the opposite of, is always whatever God is doing, this opposite of that. Uh, whatever format of trial or tribulation you might be experiencing, Satan has this, this design in it. It's for the destruction of your faith. Satan wants to destroy your faith. He wants any glory uh, that God should receive through whatever you're going through. He wants it um, to go elsewhere. And the devil wants you to obey the instructions of Job's wife. Do you remember what she said? This curse God, why don't you just curse God and die already? The devil wants here, he wants the explosive growth that was going on in the church to come to a, a grinding halt. Um, he wanted Christians to be afraid to worship God. He wanted Christians to be afraid to tell others about the salvation that's found only in Jesus. And so the devil began working through a king named Herod here. Now, had the devil done that before? Yeah, a few times. Uh, he had through this king's granddaddy, this king's granddaddy. That was the one that we probably read about in the last month when we studied the passages about Christ's birth. King Herod the Great, uh, he was the one that desired to kill Jesus, to destroy him, I think is what it says in, in Matthew. Um, he was so bent on doing so that he was willing to murder all the children two years old and under in the region of, of Bethlehem. Uh, and the Herod of, of Acts 12, one here is, is King Herod Agrippa. Now his uncle was the King Herod who presided over the mock trial and, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, and Satan's working through this King Herod once again to destroy the church, to destroy the faith of uh, Christians through persecution. Verse 1 says that he stretched forth his hands to vex the church in the King James. He, he stretched forth his hands to harm the church. And the first casualty in this persecution was that disciple of Jesus Christ named James. You're probably familiar with him. James, the brother of John, 
Well, that he was one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. And verse 2 says that King Herod killed uh, James, the brother of John, with a sword. Now, typically when that phrase is used in the New Testament, it means that the person is beheaded. Uh, first century church historian Clement of Alexandria, um, he said that the soldier who was guarding James, uh, he was so affected by the courageous testimony of faith in Christ that, that James um, exhibited, that he trusted in Jesus as Savior in James' final moments, and he also, he willingly gave up his life alongside of, of James. And I just mentioned that uh, because Satan's purposes, ultimately, they never win, right? He wants to destroy the church, and even as James is martyred, the church is, is growing because of his testimony. Uh, when the devil designs and desires, uh, what he designs and desires in persecuting uh, the church is always, it always ends up causing the exact opposite effect. And we'll, we'll see more on that in just a moment. But, but that wasn't the end of it. Verse 3 tells us that at King Herod, he recognized, wow, uh, killing James, that made my constituents um, pretty happy. And so he proceeded to take Peter also. He's going to do the same thing to Peter. And Herod did this during the days of unleavened bread. The Passover celebration was going on. We learn in verse 4 that King Herod put Peter in prison and he assigned four sets of four guards, four soldiers. That's the Quaternions in the King James. Me and Tommy had to go over that word, make sure we said it right uh, a couple of times. Four sets of four soldiers to guard him with the intent that after Passover, he was going to bring Peter out and do the same thing to Peter that he did to James. Why? <laughs> because James and Peter had done something wrong? Because they had broken the law? No, verse 3 told us why. Because it was politically expedient for King Herod. It was going to bolster his popularity and his power with the people. And before we move on here, there's an application for us, I'm afraid. Um, now, you and I right now experiencing anything like this as Jesus followers, uh, it may be a while. It may never happen. Um, but the way things are going, it could be nearer than any of us would probably like to admit. I mean, it is happening in other parts of the world, even right now. That's been the testimony of church history. This thing has been, things like this have been going on uh, since the church w was born. And the harsh reality is that, that you and I, we now live in a cultural environment where, where mob rule occurs and where um, political expediency, it could easily, easily place the Jesus follower under the peril of some form of persecution. And the truth is some Christians have already experienced persecution because of their stand for Christ, even in our culture. Then maybe not martyrdom just yet. Uh, I don't know how far off that is. It's been the experience of much of Christianity elsewhere, even now and, and in the history of the church. And as your under-shepherd, as your pastor, I have the responsibility to prepare you to meet that challenge should it ever come. And praise God, we've got a faith-fueling model of how to do that right here in this passage. The beginning of verse 5 reminds us that Peter was kept in prison. He's on death row, really. And as soon as Easter, as soon as Passover is over, King Herod's plan, Satan's plan, is to have Peter meet the same fate as James. That's Satan's purpose. What about God's purpose? Again, we're not told about God's purpose specifically in the first five verses either. It becomes very clear as we read the rest of this passage. But, but God's purpose in it, God's purpose in any any circumstance that you may face, Christian, the good things, the not-so-good things, the, the painful things, it's the opposite of Satan's purpose. Uh, the devil's design is for the destruction of your faith. The Lord's design is for the construction 
of your faith. And maybe, maybe not just yours. Maybe your family's faith. Maybe God's design in any trial or uh, tribulation. Maybe it's not even about you, per se. Maybe it's so that your wife uh, or your husband or your kids or your grandkids or your neighbor or your coworker or your fellow believer or your, or your pastor. Maybe God's sending that in your life and wants you to go through so that their faith can be built up. It can be constructed. Because they, were, they saw you. They saw you remain faithful. They saw you remain full of faith through it all. And that's what happened here. We're getting ahead of ourselves. It's going to become clear as we go on. In this passage, we're also taught about the power of prayer. Is there power in prayer? Yeah. Uh, is prayer a powerful means of, of sustaining grace in the life of the Christian? I know we say it, and, and yes, to some degree we believe it, but I don't think there's a, a one of us here this morning that would boldly state my prayer life is everything uh, it should be and, and I don't need to pray more. While Peter's in prison here, headed to, to be beheaded, what is the church doing according to the second part of verse 5 there? What are they doing? Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. What a description of prayer we've got there. Um, the kind of prayers offered to God from Peter's brothers and sisters in Christ, they were prayers that were made without ceasing. And the contrast here is so obvious. Peter is bound, but, but the church's prayer life is loosed in this passage. Uh, the church responded to the peril of persecution. They responded with corporate prayer. And they knew. They knew from previous experience about the power of prayer. It was at a prayer meeting just like this in Acts chapter 2 that, that the promise of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit came upon all of them. There's power in prayer. It was made without ceasing. And here we hear echoes in James' epistle. God in James 5.16 promises the Jesus follower this, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, it availeth much. Listen, that, that's what made without ceasing means. It was fervent. There was no quitting. It was tireless. You understand that that kind of prayer, it, it accesses great Power, that's what availeth much means. God tells us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Jesus follower, pray without ceasing. And we're about to be taught here, church, that there's power in our fervent prayers. And in verses 6 to 16, we see that power. We, we learn of Peter's deliverance through prayer. And we read it together earlier, and for the sake of the time, I want to try to summarize verses 6 to, to 16. We find Peter in prison in verse 6. He's chained uh, on each arm uh, to a guard. King Herod wants to make sure that that will happen back in chapter 5 when, when Peter and the other apostles had a, a prison break. That, that ain't going to happen here. And what does verse 6 say Peter's doing this night as he's chained to these two guards awaiting his execution? <clears throat> the very next morning, what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. <laughs> Peter's sleeping. So I got to pause and hit on this. Do you know there's a lot of faith exhibited in sleeping? Now, that's good news for some of you. Because I know some of you are very thankful for the gift of God's grace that sleep is. It's a time when you're entirely dependent on God, isn't it? You know, you're not in control. I see faith in Peter sleeping. Do you remember in John 21, 18, what Jesus told Peter? He promised him that he would be martyred 
at one point in his life for his faith. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked wherever you wanted. But when you will be old, you will stretch forth your hands and another will gird you and he'll carry you where you don't want to go. And I, I think Peter believed here what Jesus said and he knew that th this right now, this wasn't his time. And we know from church history that Peter did eventually lay down his life for uh, his faith. He supposedly crucified upside down at the hands of a Roman emperor. But, but Jesus had told Peter this would happen when you are old. And so I, I think Peter is catching some Z's here uh, because he had faith in what Jesus said. And even if, <laughs> even if he would meet the same fate right now as his fellow disciple James, what would that be for Peter? Gain, right? It'd be gain. <laughs> Let's move on. The exciting part starts in verse 7 because God sends an angel into that prison cell. The angel of the Lord came upon him, it says, and light shined in the prison. That angel smote Peter on the side. He said, get up, buddy, let's go. And then what does verse 7 say happened to those chains that were on each of Peter's hands? What did, what did they do? They fell off. <laughs> they fell off. The angel tells Peter to get dressed and follow him out of prison. And Peter obeys in verses 9 and 10. He's still a little unsure. Is this real? <laughs> or is this kind of like the vision I had a couple chapters back? And they go out of the cell. And they pass the first post of two guards. And they pass the second two prison guards. And then they come to this big iron prison gate that, that leads out into the city. What now? And I've I got to tell you, I love this phrase in verse 10. Which opened to them of his own accord. Just like those chains that fell off. Um, this last obstacle just opens. Just opens. Do you know what the Greek word for of his own accord is? Automatos. That's where we get our English word for automatic. Just automatically open. And that big iron gate that looked like an obstacle, it became an open door of deliverance. So can I just return to God's purposes in the peril we face in persecution? Yes, um, God's purpose and whatever you're going through is for the construction of your faith and the faith of other believers who might be involved in your circumstance. But, but exactly what does that construction look like? Let's get practical. Well, it looks like getting God's people fervently praying. Your faith is built up. It's constructed that way. It looks like you and others seeing the miraculous power of God in chains that just fall off, in prison doors that just open automatically. It looks like your faith being constructed looks like open doors in your life that God has designed not to swing open any other way than you experiencing the tough circumstances that he's sending you through right now. Are you getting this? I pray you're getting this. Now in verses 11 to 16, things, um, they go from suspenseful and, ex and exciting to, to kind of funny, really. Peter comes to himself. He realizes, okay, this is no uh, vision. This is real. Uh, he's out in the city. I'm free and I've been delivered. So what should he do now? What should Peter do? Where should he go? We find out he goes to this prayer meeting. Peter, Peter has got now this incredible opportunity to testify of the power of prayer and of God's deliverance through prayer to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter doesn't bug out. I don't, I don't think that might have been my response. Peter's free from prison. He doesn't bug out and head for the hills to go hide, make sure he's not captured again. Peter's going to use what God has done in his life 
to point others to what our God can do in their life. And, and so Peter goes to the home of a lady named Mary in verse 12, and she's got a son named Mark. We know him as John Mark from what we'll learn later in Acts. Uh, the church in Jerusalem and met often in her home. And her son, John Mark, we, we studied his gospel that the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen uh, before here on Sunday morning. Uh, John Mark would accompany Barnabas and Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. And Peter goes there. And when, what does it say there in verse 12 they were doing there? Yeah, praying. Where many were gathered together praying. What were they praying for? Peter's deliverance. Verses 13 to 16 detail the funny part. Peter knocks on the door. A young girl named Rhoda. She answers, who is it? Peter says, it's me. It's Peter. And then um, she's so excited that she doesn't answer the door. She doesn't open it. She goes running back inside to tell others that Peter is, is outside. Now they tell her, uh, I think you're off your rocker. That's their first response. Or, or maybe it's Peter's guardian angel. Maybe Peter's already been killed. And now his angel's here to tell us about it. But surely it's not Peter. It's not the answer to our prayers. <laughs> Couldn't be. And Peter keeps knocking and finally they let him in. At the end of verse 16, it says they were all astonished. Well, I guess so. Astonished. And listen, this isn't just a slightly humorous uh, record of events. There's a lesson for us and I'm so thankful for it, church. Uh, and here it is when we're talking about the power of prayer. And we've, we've got to get this. Um, the power of prayer isn't in the power of, of our prayers, but it's in who our prayers are directed to. Amen? That's where the power of prayer is. And I'm so thankful for that. Because, I mean, yes, these Christians were gathered together. And yes, they, they were. They were fervently praying. But it's very clear that their prayers may not have been the most full of faith prayers. Right? I mean, praise the Lord, uh, when, when chains are present and when every other gate is shut up and, and locked, we always have a gate to heaven that's wide open. If we've trusted Christ as Savior, he's up there. He's our, our mediator, bringing our requests before God. Back in verse 5, when it is said that prayer was made without ceasing unto God for Peter from, from the church, the Greek word is ektenos. Um, that is a medical term that describes the stretching of a muscle. It so perfectly describes what these believers were doing. They were. They were putting all they had into their prayers. They were putting all of their faith into their prayers, even though according to verses 12 to 16, their faith was comparatively little that God would actually answer their prayers. But, but, but we know this. Little faith, little faith can accomplish great things if it's placed in a great God. And little prayers can do the same. Uh, God in his great grace and mercy, he did. He did answer their prayers. He saw their faith uh, muscles being stretched. He saw their prayer muscles being stretched. And God responded with a deliverance through their prayers. And aren't you so glad this morning that God does not dispense his grace to us solely based on our level of faith that we might have at any given moment? Will you praise God this morning that the power in prayer, it isn't in the power of our prayers, but in who that they are directed to? Man, I'm so thankful for that. If you can identify with these believers here, will you cry out this morning or whenever that situation arises and say, like that father did to Jesus, I believe, <laughs> but, but help my unbelief, please. God, teach me to trust you. In verses 17 and 19, the story kind of wraps up here. We see the protection of providence. That's what Peter wants to testify of. 
Um, because for Peter, this is a very personal testimony. In verse 17, Peter enters that home uh, church and he tells them, hey, settle down. Um, and then he tells them the whole story. Every detail, everything that happened. And God had allowed this to occur in Peter's life because Peter needed his faith to increase. I mean, his faith was obviously strong comparatively. And we saw him earlier restfully, serenely sleeping while he was awaiting his deliverance. But there would be more trials and tribulations ahead. The peril of persecution is a perpetual threat to the church. It still is in verses 18 and 19. Herod's still trying to go find Peter where he escaped to. And there would come a day when Peter would be older. And his faith would be tested again. And when just like Jesus, someone would take him where he may not necessarily want to go. Where he would stretch out his hands and experience martyrdom for Christ. But, but this wasn't all just about Peter and, and constructing Peter's faith. And chapter 12 is actually about the last time we hear about Peter in the whole book of Acts. It's one little section, I think, in chapter 15. And God allowed this to happen in Peter's life so he'd also have a public testimony. Peter, uh, he told all these Christians who had been praying about what God has done um, in response to their prayers. And in verse 17, Peter tells him to make his testimony public. He says, I need you to inform James of this and the other brethren who were part of the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because they needed to hear it. <laughs> they needed to learn about the protection of providence. I don't know where this James was. This is obviously a different James than chapter 12, verse 2. Um, this is James the brother of Jesus Christ. It's talked about here. The, the, one, the one who didn't trust Christ until his brother rose from the grave. Things like that will change your opinion, right? Um, where's James? Maybe he's praying somewhere else. Entirely possible. Or maybe he had fled the area, just like I would have, when I heard that James the disciple was beheaded and Peter was about to be. <laughs> Through Peter's deliverance here, God wanted Peter, and God wanted the church at Mary's house, and God wanted James and the rest of the brethren to know this, and God wants us to know this this morning. When you are Christ's, you are immortal until he says so. You are. Um, I hope you believe that. I hope you do, because that's what God repeatedly teaches us in his word through passages like this. And we so desperately need to believe this truth in God's word in order to be faithful in this world. Because we have King Herods in our lives. And they're bent on our destruction. And they're very frightening. And there are King Nebuchadnezzars in our lives. And there's fiery furnaces. And there's King Darius's in our lives. And there's lion's dens. And there's Goliath's. But there's also David's. And there's Daniel's. And there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's. And there are Peter's who are sleeping peacefully in their prison cell, awaiting to see what God will do. And who will you be? Will you keep on obeying God in faith? Or are you going to live life controlled by fear? But will you let fear keep you from doing what God has commanded you to do? And as we close, we've got to deal with this. Okay, what about James? Verse 2, James. What, what about him? Um, where's the power of prayer 
in James' life? And where's the protection of providence in his life? Or what about Peter later on when he was martyred? Where's the deliverance there? Oh, there's deliverance there, church. There's deliverance there. We, we had better align our faith and our understandings with the truth of God's word that we profess to believe. James went to his reward, didn't he? The James of verse 2. That's deliverance, friend. Uh, I mean, that, that is a full and, and final and forever deliverance. That is the powerful, protecting providence of God in the greatest experience that a Christian can ever have. And God's providence, it was as much at work in James' martyrdom and in Peter's future martyrdom as it is here in Peter's jailbreak. Where did James go when he was beheaded back in verse 2? The same place that the deacon Stephen went when he was the first martyr in the church? Immediately and forever into the presence of the Lord. So if we truly believe God's word, if we truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, James, he got the greater deliverance in this account. Uh, James got greater gain than Peter did at this point. For those who've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that's what God has the Apostle Paul tell us in Philippians 1, 21, isn't it? For me to live, it's awesome. <laughs> Life is a blessing because I'm in Christ. And for me to die, what is it? It's gain. <laughs> for me to die is gain. That's what God says. Because I'll be forever in the presence of Christ. Is it gain? Is it really? I mean, is that what your faith holds to? Is that how life is lived? Is it in the presence of God? Is that how you live out your life? In the presence of others who are witnessing what you do? Or does fear too often take charge and tell you, nah, that can't be. That's loss. I don't differentiate between persecution and any other types of trials and tribulations in a Christian's life. I mean, I know there's differences, but I don't differentiate because they got the same design by Satan, no matter what they are. And they got the same design by God. And so when either comes your way, or maybe it already has, maybe you're here this morning, you're in the middle of it. I got to ask you, whose design is going to win? If you choose faith, God's design will win. Your, your faith will be constructed. God will be glorified. Those who are around you, who are watching you go through, because there is a through, amen? That's what we learn here. Those around you who are watching you go through, their faith will be constructed, and God will be glorified. If you choose fear, Satan's design will win. To some degree, your faith will be deconstructed. Maybe others. God's glory veiled. It's really that critical. I mean, do you believe in the power of prayer? We learned about that here. And I doubt there's a person here who would say no. I mean, so we've all got the Sunday school answer right. But I mean, is that belief in the power of prayer, is that actually lived out? Is there a fervency in your prayers? Do you stretch this actena, stretching the muscle? Are you stretching in your prayers, however weak and feeble they may seem to you? The Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said about this passage, I just love this. The angel may have fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched that angel. Are your prayers fetching prayers? Do they ever fetch anything? Are they powerful because of who you are fervently praying them to? In faith, when God delivers you, what's your response? Is it like Peter's here? Do you testify of what he has brought you through publicly? 
to tell others um, that, that God has constructed your faith. You praise him so that the faith of others can be built up. Do you understand that the whole reason that there has been a through for you may be so that others who are currently in a situation, that they're encouraged to do what you did, to trust in God and go through to, as Tommy comes to lead us in a time to respond to God's word.